Things That Saved the Nation on ADH-TV, and I'm David Flint. I'm delighted to have as a very special guest, Stephen Senatiempo, who's very well known in media circles in Australia. After graduating from the Australian Film, Television and Radio School in 2010, he's really shone and uh, at present is to be seen regularly on Sky and uh, has a breakfast program on uh, two double C in Canberra and uh, is being noticed. His views are received with great interest around the place and uh, welcome Stephen. David, wonderful to be with you. Uh, after uh, having you on my program every week, I thought I should return the favour. <laughs> well, I do thank you and thank you for having me on Canberra Breakfast no, it's a great Radio. Uh, at the time that we're recording, the president, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, is being arrested. And before we go into what we're going to talk about, I'm just wondering what your reaction was to that. Look, I, I'm, I've never really been a Donald Trump fan. I think the problem with politics at the moment is, is there's a certain coarseness to politics in um, the Western world these days, and, and Donald Trump has contributed to that. However, I think this is a classic case of a weaponization of law enforcement to attack a political opponent. And you would hope that in a country like the United States, we never got to that. And look, I know you're far more of a legal scholar than I am, but I can't see how this uh, indictment or any prosecution can actually be successful in this case against Donald Trump, because it's almost like he's being tried for thought crimes almost. I agree with you. I, I think this is a dissent and uh, it will only tempt the Republicans to do the same thing when they're in office. Once you start doing mm. this sort of thing, you then set that as the standard. Uh, the same thing happened really yeah, and when we're seeing something similar here too. Yes, with these all these you know back and forward royal commissions. It's uh, it's a same you know we we keep looking backwards rather than looking forwards. Yes, and we saw that didn't we in the ACT where there was a an apparent politicisation or something happened in relation to the position of DPP. It was becoming more like mm. an American district attorney, and district attorneys yes. in America are, I think, by mistake, they're elected rather than appointed and expected to be impartial. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good comparison, and I've used it myself in that, you know, you see in a lot of these American TV shows where when there's a high-profile case, the district attorney decides that he's going to step in and take care of it himself. I mean, most... Uh, Prosecutors that I've spoken to in this country say it's almost unheard of in Australia for the actual director of public prosecutions to try a case themselves rather than have their chief prosecutor do it. And uh, at the time, I thought it was a bit strange that Shane Drumgold, the former now former DPP, decided to do that here in the Lerman case. Um, but it's come back to backfire on him. So, um, I, I, look, I think there's still a lot more to play out with this too. Yes, I thought his uh, his address, his public address when the case didn't go ahead was extraordinary, particularly mm. when he indicated that he thought that uh, uh, he would win. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a strange thing to say when you're announcing publicly that you're not going to proceed with a prosecution. Yes, it does, it does seem to be a contradiction and not normally done for a, a DPP to appear on television to give such an address. This is a very American uh, these people in America who've done this in relation to Trump have become international public figures, and I gather they're using this to 
to raise funds for their future elections and they'll they'll go up the scale and try and become senators and so on you would think so it uh, you know it's um and uh, look i'm hoping that we seem to be adopting a lot of things in the United States these days, particularly the vernacular of our children. Hopefully we don't, uh, I guess, get to that same point with our politicians. I mean, the, the biggest problem we've got with our politicians here is we have a professional professional political class now, a group of people that have never had a real job in the real world who, you know, on the Labor side, you leave university, go to work for a union, go to work for a politician and then end up a politician themselves. On the coalition side, we have them come straight out of uni into an MP's office and then do the numbers to get themselves a position in politics. I think that we've got to go back to a time where we have a political class that has some experience out amongst the great unwashed to know what it is that we're facing so that they can represent us. I think that is so true. Uh, we we have lost a lot and, and, and it shows, doesn't it, in... Uh, in what's happening mm. in government because they have had no experience in the real life. And the best experience in the real life yeah, is usually funny. a small business and farming. Well, absolutely. And I, I was discussing this with a, a former politician a few months back, and I think the turning point seems to have been, and, and it's interesting that Mark Latham's in the news at the moment because he was the driver of this, when they moved away from the divine, defined benefits scheme and put our politicians back onto basically a superannuation scheme like the rest of us, I reckon that's the turning point where we saw the quality of our politicians drop when, you know, we stopped offering them a decent post-politics living. Um, quality people decided, well, it's not worth doing this anymore. Yes, that may well be so. When you look at the federal legislature, there are people like Malcolm Roberts who has actually been down a mine. He was an engineer, but actually yep. worked in a mine. And you have uh, Pauline Hanson, who ran a, a fish and chip shop. You have people who've had some real experience there and some farmers yep. among the nationals, but uh, on the Labor side, it's, it's not like Chifley, where you had a prime minister who was a train driver. Uh, and uh, That's right. the same in the coalition. You, you find, uh, particularly on the Liberal side, you find the professional politicians. And when they go into those jobs in politicians' offices, they go as so-called advisors, which I think comes from the Whitlam era. I think at the, before Whitlam, the Prime Minister was lucky if he had a staff of uh, uh, three or four. Now the Prime Minister has mm. an extraordinarily large staff. And during those times when they're they're uh, engaged as advisors, they're learning all the worst things about being a politician. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, I mean, your colleague, Alan Jones, who also uh, regularly appears on my program, I think when he was working with uh, Malcolm Fraser, I think he says there was a staff of five in the PM's office. Now I think it's it's 50 plus just in the PM's office. Plus you've also got the Prime Minister, the uh, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet um, and all the other hanging on advisors. And you think, w when, does a, when does a politician have enough time to actually speak to all of these advisors <laughs> to actually get advice from them? If there's so many of them, they must be spending all their time talking to them rather than listening to us. And the public service has been politicised and commercialised in that uh, their salaries are now consistent with the private sector and there's no parallel really. And quite often they're cleaned mm. out when the government changes as in the United States. So we don't have the independent, yeah. uh, long-serving public service. And we also then also have a lot of consultants who come in and uh, borrow, mm. borrow the information they receive about uh, taxation 
uh, actions to protect the tax revenue from people taking money out of it, and they then uh, one of them then uh, then gave that to their clients. <laughs> it was an yeah. extraordinary no, it, situation. I was going to ask and now you. Now apparently, uh, sorry, yep, go ahead. I was going to ask you, Stephen, about a current issue, and that is the way in which. Uh, the government seems to be protecting Qantas from competition and thereby holding up the fares that Australians are paying for travel. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? I think it is. Look, I, I you know, a far more cynical person than me would say that there is a direct link. But uh, it was interesting this morning when I was looking at the, the Qantas profit figures that were released this morning, which I think was $2.5 billion dollars which is almost exactly the amount of money that we handed out to Qantas during COVID that they're now refusing to pay back because uh, I think according to Alan Joyce, well, I don't know how we would pay it back because we paid it to far too many people. It wasn't just a lump sum. Well, I don't know that that necessarily matters. You can still write a cheque. But, um, you know, there's just too much. It stinks too much what's going on with Qantas. You've got the Qatar Airlines being blocked from getting uh, flights into Australia. Um, you've got the the whole issue with the chairman's uh, club um, membership that's been given to Anthony Albanese's son. Um, the whole uh, issue with the yes uh, vote planes, the planes that were painted with uh, yes slogans. It, it all seems a little bit too cosy, particularly when Qantas, who which a company that's actually been on its knees more than once in the last decade, is all of a sudden turning around a massive profit at the expense of others in the industry. And uh, look, I know Qantas has a special I guess, a nostalgic place in Australian history. And once upon a time, we, the taxpayer, owned it. But, you know, given that it has now been privatised, surely it's got to stand on its own two feet. But it can't do that by standing on top of its competitors. But wasn't Qatar stopped because uh, it would have an impact on the weather, on the climate, and uh, having all those jets coming (laughs) in uh, would uh, damage the climate? Wasn't that why the government stopped them? I'm, I'm sure that that's. I'm sure that's the excuse, David. Yes, <laughs> that was put out as an excuse by one of the many excuses yes. that the relevant minister made, trying to justify a, a, a decision is completely unacceptable. The idea that uh, prices that, that a government should be turning a particular industry into an oligopoly is appalling, is it not? Mm. Maybe that's why Qantas cancel half the flights that they have out in and out of Canberra to save the environment, perhaps. Um, that's a that's a, a local story here at the moment. The, the local airport is very upset with the fact that Qantas are cancelling so many flights and leaving their passengers stranded. Uh, they seem to think it's in retaliation for whatever the fees they pay to actually park at the airport here in Canberra. Apparently, they're higher than anywhere else. But um, yeah, maybe that's they're trying to save the planet. <laughs> Could we go to another area where governments seem to be obsessed with doing something very quickly, certainly more quickly than most other countries and certainly more quickly than the biggest emitter of CO2, uh, China, uh, and they seem to be rushing us into renewables at any cost. It's extraordinary. And here in the ACT, it's a classic example. We pretend that we operate on 100% renewable energy when... The reality is that we produce 5% of our own energy, 95% comes from across the border, Uh, 80% of that is produced by coal, but somehow we do the maths and determine that if we had a bathtub full of water and we took out a glass, we could determine which molecules went into that glass, which clearly we can't. But 
Um, you know, I mean, we, we've probably got the most left-wing government in the country here in Canberra, and that's you know, for, clear for all to see. Um, we're about to ban uh, wood heaters. We're banning gas connections. People won't be able to use gas. So everybody's going to have to transition to electric appliances in their homes. I don't know where all this extra power is going to come from because we know that renewables aren't cutting it. I mean, the, elect the, the energy regulator is telling us that. We don't have enough supply in the grid. We know that renewable energy doesn't provide the reliable baseload power that other sources of power do. It's it's almost like the, the only people telling the truth about this, I think, and this is the scary part, are the Greens because they're actively happy to... And if you talk to them on an individual basis, I mean, they're happy to tell you that they want you to freeze to death in the dark because we humans are evil and we need to save this planet. And if it costs us, well, so be it. Well, will the, has the Chief Minister explained how many degrees the temperature will be held down by all the things that he is imposing on the people of the ACT? Oh, the Chief Minister never explains himself. He does, he's not accountable to anybody and he believes... Uh, um, he threw a tantrum on my program one morning when I tried to hold him account on some of his budget figures and no, no, he doesn't answer the questions that he doesn't want to answer. And moving over into New South Wales, were you uh, pleasantly surprised, as I was, that the men's government has decided to extend the life of the biggest uh, coal-fired power station, I think, in the country, or airing, rather than closing it down as the previous Liberal government was going to do, or encourage? Yeah, look, I'm not surprised. I don't know that I'm surprised because it's out of necessity, and I think had the previous government retain power, they would have been forced to do the same because at the end of the day, uh, it's all well and good to want your green credentials and pretend that you're saving the planet. But when the lights start going off and people can't, you know, turn their stoves on and um, and can't put their air conditioners on come summer, uh, it's politically expedient to actually do the right thing. So I think Chris Minns is not, a, he's not stupid. He's a clever politician, pretty clearly. Um, and I think this was a necessity. But I thought it was interesting that there was also the announcement that they're going to ex extend the life of... Um, the uh, power station in Lithgow, but it will, be, it will only be used as a backup for renewable energy. So, in other words, it will be on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because that's what a backup for renewable energy needs to do, unfortunately. But, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm surprised by it, but uh, um, pleasantly relieved is probably a better way to put it. Professor Sloan uh, says in her column in The Australian that... Uh, the uh, CSIRO forgot to take into account when they were calculating the cost of renewables, the cost of transmissions. These transmission lines, which mm. are very expensive and taking up so much of the agricultural land in the country, they didn't take that into account. Although I see this morning, they're trying to defend that and saying they didn't overlook it. No, I, well, I think it was probably rather than forgetting, deliberately leaving it out, because when you look at the billions that it's going to cost to effectively duplicate our transmission infrastructure in this country to support renewables, and, and that's the biggest thing. You know, I mean, I know that Chris Bowen, I saw there was a column from him in The Australian again this morning, demonising nuclear, but we all know that nuclear energy is the answer and can plug straight into our current transmission infrastructure. It doesn't require this I think they used to call it gold plating. I think we're up to diamond plating now with the, <laughs> amount, the amount of money that they're going to have to spend on it. Um, but it, not only, but it's not only the transmission infrastructure. When you look at, there was a, a company in Western Sydney that produces um, chips, you know, uh, potato chips, and they actually looked into transitioning from their current power supplier to renewables. They were they were looking at transitioning to solar, 
And to run their chip factory was going to take 200 acres of solar panels. Now, that's just one factory. So when you look at the amount of uh, pristine farming land that is being destroyed currently for solar farms, they're about to build one just across the border in New South Wales in the Yass Valley, uh, which is mega hectares of prime farming land that's going to be absolutely useless now because it'll have these solar panels on it. Uh, we see the situation in Queensland with the wind turbines where they're, they're destroying uh, effectively rainforest to put these wind turbines up without the remediation requirements that a coal mine would have, mind you. Mm. So if you are, if you start a coal mine, you've actually got to build your, your rehabilitation program in at the front end and tell them how you're going to fix things when you're finished. Apparently, if you're putting wind turbines in, you can destroy as much uh, native in, in, in environment as you possibly want um, to put these things in for not much gain. Um, and then, you know, if you look at Victoria too, off, off the uh, in Bass Strait, the um, wind turbines they want to put out offshore apparently are going to destroy the lobster industry. So it's it's it, the, the trade-offs are just extraordinarily high to achieve an ideological. I don't want to use the word ideological ideal. That's obviously a um, but it's it, it's all about ideology rather than practicality. Um, and as you say, when you say, when you say, does the can the chief minister tell us how many degrees the temperature is going to drop because of all this? Well, no, of course they can't. But the other, and this is something I, I said on my program yesterday. If indeed all of these climate alarmists are correct about the the warming of the planet and the the increasing temperature, etc., let's, for the sake of the argument, assume that they're right. The psychological damage they are doing to the next generations of our children in order to push this ideological agenda is extraordinary. The reality is that even if they are 100% correct, the world's not going to end tomorrow. It's not going to end in the lifetime of anybody that's alive today or indeed the next two or three generations. And it's not going to put it to change our lives that much that it's going to have much of an impact on the human race. In fact, I've, I've seen people say that if, if we do have this global warming, it's actually going to allow us to increase food production, uh, which stands to reason because we know when the sun shines, food grows. So I, I think it's more than just the economic damage. It's the psychological damage that we are doing to future generations of Australia by trying to scare them into believing an ideological position. And that's the most insidious thing of this for, my, for mine. I don't care if I can't turn the air conditioner on. But if my niece and nephew are terrified to walk out of their door because they think that they're going to die from global warming, well, then that really concerns me. And that's not the only thing that uh, children are being terrified by or troubled by. No. I mean, the, the way in which uh, transgender issues have been put to very young children, I find appalling. Mm. And it's all, it is child abuse when you're talking about encouraging children to considering medical measures, not only pills and things, blockers and so on, but also even surgical measures in relation to something which was once never an issue and only arose later on when people became adults, a small number of people who wished to make changes, but it's really an issue for adults and certainly not for children to do that, is it not? Absolutely, and I, and I think it goes one step further than that. I mean, the, the damage it's doing to children is is disgraceful. But uh, you know, gender dysphoria is real. I mean, there are there is a very small section of the community that does suffer from uh, that condition, and it's almost as if we want to celebrate the condition rather than treat it mm. and and treat it like it's uh, give them some sort of hero status. Now, I would prefer that we actually looked after people that have a condition that needs treating rather than turning it into a 
a, a political flag-waving event, so to speak, which is then you know, affecting not only those people, but being pushed onto people that aren't being affected by these things, which is exactly, I think, what you, is what you're saying. It's, uh, you know, we, we find ourselves in very interesting times. And, you know, a lot of people forget that that was actually a Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Yes. Exactly, yes. D does it worry you when you see uh, coalition governments in office sometimes doing things that you would expect from uh, a party of the left rather than a, a party of traditional values, the sort of values that uh, uh, Sir Robert Menzies instilled into the Liberal Party and which were followed by people like John Howard and Tony Abbott? Oh, it, it concerns me, and I've got to say it doesn't surprise me, because um, going back to talking about that political class, we're not talking about people who have life experience anymore we're talking people who are about people who are only driven by political outcome and when you're driven by fear rather than practical outcomes and you're driven by that political fear well then you're going to fall into these these patterns and you know i mean we see it here in the act with our current opposition almost trying to outgreen the greens because they think well the only way we're going to win office is if we steal voters away that are never going to vote for us. Um, it's it's dumb politics, but I understand it, and I understand and I understand it because it's clearly being driven. It's the mentality that is driving a group of people that don't have the experience, the wherewithal, or the intelligence to operate any other way. Mm. I remember a time when uh, purely local government, municipal government, and Canberra was then a municipality, and I remember in the mm. municipality that I lived in. Uh, uh, only the Labour Party stood as a party in the local government elections and aldermen, as they were then called, weren't paid. It was a voluntary thing. The only abuse that occurred was sometimes people from real estate got into local government and misused their position. But apart from that, these were worthy people who were interested in the local area. Then suddenly a few years ago, I remember this was in Waverley, which is... Uh, uh, municipality which inc includes Bondi Beach and uh, suddenly we were seeing signs all over the municipality saying that uh, Waverley was a nuclear free municipality uh, and I hadn't heard of any proposal to put a nuclear power station on Bondi Beach but suddenly we became a nuclear free uh, municipality which had nothing to do with the garbage collection and looking after the roads and so on. This seems to be a a big thing, doesn't it, where you have local governments doing things outside their remit? Yeah, it's it's funny. I think there's there's two parts to this. Firstly, local government is now being used as a stepping stone to higher levels of government and almost like a, a training ground for would-be politicians. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with somebody who is a community-minded person going into local government, building a profile, and then eventually going on to state or federal politics to further their support of their own community, but that's not how it's happening. So that's that's part of it, is that we, again, it plays into that professional professional political class, but it's almost, it's almost part of the TikTok generation, for lack of a better way of putting it, where everybody wants to be a celebrity. Anybody with a Twitter account or X account or whatever they call it now um, is uh, deemed a journalist. Anybody who has a mobile phone um, is uh, apparently entitled to express an opinion Politically, I mean, the the concept of the soapbox has become almost global. So we've got a bunch of people that want to grandstand now rather than actually do their jobs, um, which is why we've got this influencer class now, people that don't have jobs. They apparently just 
you know, post videos on social media and somehow make money out of that. I haven't quite worked out how to do it yet, but if I ever do, I'll let you know. Um, but we, it's it's now breeding into our political class as well, where you've got every two-bit councillor wants to be some sort of celebrity and pushing barrows beyond what their remit is. And you know, if we got back to the old basics of roads, rates and rubbish, and and this even extends, I think, to later to state government to a certain extent. I, I once said to a former state, uh, a liberal upper house politician in New South Wales, I said, federal politics is complex. When you've got to deal with geopolitical issues and, and those kind of things, there are complexities to that that do take a little bit of skill. State government, the problems facing state governments are easy, as easy to fix as talkback radio makes them sound. They are overcomplicated by politicians trying to justify their own existence. Now, that you now transpose that into the, the social media era, and it's now been amplified with that celebrity element put into it as well, which it's a rabbit hole that I don't know that we can climb out of anymore. It is, it is a frightening situation we find ourselves in today. Maybe we need to... Um, I think there was an old saying that nobody knows how World War Three will be fought, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and bones. Maybe that's the way we need to get back to. <laughs> There's such wisdom in that. Uh, can we go mm. on to the issue du jour, the, the voice referendum? Where do you see that going it's, now? Um, uh, look, I've had a lot to say about this, um, and there are so many different angles to it. My position has always been this. We have had something like this before. We had this thing called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, which was an abject failure. Billions of dollars were thrown at it over years. None of those dollars ever got to the people that needed it, and that is the disadvantaged Indigenous remote and regional communities. And I've often talked about the divide in Australia, not necessarily being between Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians. It's between Indigenous Australians in, in those remote areas and Indigenous Australians in the cities. Yes, that's I remember where the divide you, is. I remember you are, saying that, and I think that's a... I looked it up, and it's a very valid comparison. Because if you look at most of the activists that are pushing the voice, they've never experienced a day of disadvantage in their lives. They, they are talking on behalf of a group of people that they've probably never met. But, so that's the first problem, is we, we, we're trying to recreate a bureaucracy that we know didn't work. We're now apparently telling this lie that 80% of Indigenous Australians support the concept of a voice. Well, firstly, I don't think that is true. But even if it was, how would anybody ascertain that? <laughs> what survey has been done of Indigenous Australians to determine that 80% of them support this thing when people on the ground are telling me that in these remote areas, there's a lot of people that don't even know this whole debate's going on. So uh, that's the lie. The next lie is is that we're we're now trying to conflate constitutional recognition with this concept of the voice. Mm. The proponents will tell us that it's recognition through a voice. Well, that's almost like saying electricity through peanut butter sandwiches. The two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, I mean, there is the voice and there is constitutional recognition. They're two completely different things. One we already have. That's what 1967, the 1967 referendum was about, Indigenous recognition effectively in the Constitution. This thing called The Voice is about creating this quasi-political body that will have influence on executive government. Then we go on to the argument that uh, David Pocock, our independent senator here in, in the, the ACT, was making this morning, is that um, he's very disappointed that, that the no side are pushing this argument, if you don't know, vote no. He says, if you don't know, you should find out. And there are people who should know better 
pushing this because they're experienced politicians that know that the parliament's going to decide how this things this works. Well, if that's the case, how can we find out something that's going to happen in the future that hasn't been determined yet? Because if we do indeed vote in favour of this referendum, okay, we've got it in the constitution that we will form this voice and parliament will decide how it works. How can we guarantee what the parliament of the day is actually going to do with this thing? So we're being lied to on so many levels with this. But again, it comes back to this one fundamental thing and, and put everything else aside. If you can tell me how this thing will actually close the gap, and that's the terminology we use, if you can tell me how this thing will help disadvantaged Indigenous people in remote and rural areas, then I'll sit down and have the debate with you. But that's the one question that they refuse to answer, the one question they can't answer, and the one question they don't want to even engage in because it's the only one that matters. I agree with that. I think that uh, this, if it were to get up, I don't think it will, but if it were to get up, the one thing it won't do is close the gap because it is, it Absolutely. is, it is as, as the old saying is, it's doing the same thing over and over and expecting. It's, the, it's really the, uh, rega- it's, it's insanity because you find that if you're doing the same thing over and over and believe that you can have a different result, that's the that's definition of insanity and that's what's going to happen. This is just doing the same thing. Instead of going back to integration, integration is the solution, not segregation. Mm. And it's interesting you say that because that's the argument the proponents of the voice are using is, oh, we need to do something different. And and I've actually said to some of them personally, well, okay, well, let's all cut our big toe off. And they <laughs> said, well, why? Well, we've got to do something different. It won't achieve anything, but let's do something different. It's It, it makes no sense, you know. And, and, and the other thing too that gets me is that, you know, they, they'll use the argument that, oh, these people have a right to their own, to be, you know, to have a say in their own futures. And, and that's fine. That's what democracy is. We already have a group of local members, local members of parliament, who should be out there talking to their local communities to find out what their needs are and how to fix them. Mm. But it's not going to be Joe Bloggs from Galagambone that sits on The Voice. It's going to be the Marsha Langtons and the Tom Carmers um, and and all of these, the usual suspects will be the people on The Voice, not the people who need to be on this thing if it does exist. That's the, you know, it's it's insidious. It really is. It's a, it's a frightening prospect when you think about where this could end up if indeed it does get up. But as you say, I don't think it will. I think the Australian people are smart enough and they've woken up to that. Given uh, your experience and where you live, Stephen, you'd be the best person to tell me why the ACT government is, as you rightly say, so far to the left. Why Why is that, do you think? I, look, I've only been here for three years and I, I can only surmise that because... Canberra has effectively, since self-government, well, I guess since its inception, been a town full of public servants who always tend to lean towards the left. That's why the government has evolved the way it does. But I was talking to a local business person this morning who said to me, I'm yet to meet a person that admits to voting for this Labor-Greens government. (laughs) Clearly somebody did, but there is now starting to, there is a mood out there. Um, people are starting to change now because this government has been so effective on those practical issues. You know, we've got the worst health system in the country. We've got the lowest number of police per capita in the country. Our road system, which was once absolutely pristine, is now uh, gone to um, gone to seed. Uh, the lawns don't get mowed. There was a period a couple of years ago where the rubbish literally didn't get picked up for about six weeks. Um, we've got a planning system that's broken. We've got a homelessness crisis here in Canberra that should just not exist in an affluent town like this. All of these practical issues are starting to make a difference. But 
when it comes back to that progressive mentality, and they like to call themselves progressive, which I think is a misnomer, I think it's largely driven by the vast public service population here. But on the last ABS figures, the private sector is, has just overtaken the public sector for the number of employees. So I think we're about 54, 46 now in favour of the private sector. Now, granted, a lot of those uh, private sector companies would be these consultants and law firms that um, um, serve as government. So it's not as cut and dry as it might appear. But things are starting to change. But that's the only thing I can put it down to. You're the jurisdiction which is on its own admission, the most soft on drugs, and to get that through, they engaged in, in some, uh, some not skullduggery, but certainly they didn't do it directly by introducing their own legislation. It has the, uh, the most open laws in relation to euthanasia. It uh, doesn't tolerate uh, the Catholic Church, which uh, has had such a great role in relation to the running of hospitals, doesn't tolerate the Catholic Church running hospitals. This seems to be a, a peculiar policy that uh, the government has in the capital territory. I think the, the current government, the, the problem with the current government is there are, because of the, the nature of our electoral system, we, are, we elect our assembly via the Hare Clark system, which I call it the Duckworth-Lewis system because it makes about as much sense as the cricket when they when it rains and they've got to count back the runs. But because of the nature of, of our electoral system and we're largely electing a glorified council, the Greens have been able to infiltrate that and there's six Green MPs um, to 10 Labor in a 25-seat assembly. So the Liberals have got nine, Labor have got 10, the Greens have got six. So the Greens, the green tail is wagging the Labor dog, but we have a, a current chief minister who exhibits a level of arrogance that is that I've never ex ex seen in a politician before. I mean, I've seen arrogant politicians. I lived through the Keating years. Um, you know, I, I saw Scott Morrison operate. I saw Malcolm Turnbull. None of them have got anything on this bloke. This bloke literally believes that he is above impunity. He should not. There, he doesn't believe in accountability. Uh, there's no such thing as ministerial accountability here in the ministerial responsibility in the ACT. Ministers don't take responsibility for their portfolios. It's a one-man band. He runs the show and he believes that it is his, well, I won't say God-given right because he doesn't believe in God, but he believes that it is his right to be dictator for life effectively. Um, and that's what's largely driving, driving a lot of the bad decisions that we see or lack of decisions in the ACT. Um, but it's interesting you, may, you, you talk about that drug decriminalisation bill because um, I spotted it at the time when they first introduced it, and there's a young Labor backbencher called Michael Pedersen who introduced the legislation as a private member's bill, and it was pretty obvious at the time that it was a Trojan horse bill. They were using the cover of a private member's bill so that the government proper could keep their hands clean. Well, that's now been admitted by the health minister who uh, on uh, our, our uh, radio station yesterday with our drive program uh, said, oh, no, no, I've been taken out of context. You might have heard me say that we snuck it through by stealth and did it all very quietly and, and used the Trojan horse, but that's not really what I meant. Um, so it's, it, it's, we see this type, this type of thing time and time again here in the ACT. I mean, the Calvary Hospital thing that you mentioned earlier was a classic example. Uh, they basically bulldozed through their own protocols um, with you know no inquiry into the legislation. It was done in the um, almost uh, as a, a stealth attack in the middle of the night. Uh, the negotiations apparently had broken down with the little company of Mary, but there was no communication for six months from the with, with the government. So they were basically blindsided by this. 
Um, it, it's just, it, it's a pattern of activity that can only be driven by arrogance. That's the only, that's the only way I can describe yeah. it. We have an arrogant government that doesn't believe it, ha it should be held to account and can do whatever it wants. The similar thing happened in New South Wales, not in the after the last election, but the one before. It wasn't mentioned in the electoral campaign, but we were suddenly told as soon as the election were over that uh, there had to be very urgent abortion law reform. And the original bill which was introduced introduced the first aspect of uh, infanticide into abortion law, as, as has occurred in parts of the United States. That had to be amended because there was such outrage over it. But there seemed to be this sudden feeling that this was urgent. It was brought in a, as a private member's bill, and I always suspected that it was all understood beforehand and brought in as a private member's bill so that the then government wouldn't have to actually be responsible for bringing it in. Yeah. The politicians seem to be doing this. Do you think we sh do you think the territory should have more senators in the federal parliament? I gather that's mm. under I, consideration. I don't think the territory... Well, the the national the Labor uh, Labor Party National Conference actually uh, moved a resolution to that effect to increase the number of senators in both territories to six. Um, I spoke about this on my program earlier in the week. I don't think the, the territory should have any senators. Uh, it defeats the purpose of, one, what the Senate is supposed to be, but defeats the purpose of what a territory is supposed to be. I mean, the Senate is the state's house. It was there to represent the states in the federal parliament after federation. Well, the territories are not states. They they, they don't operate as states. They don't have the same um, jurisdictional capacity as states, so they shouldn't have senators at all. Now, in 1975, the parliament, through its infinite wisdom, decided to give them two each. So be it. I don't think that's ever going to go backwards. But... It, the crux of it comes down to this. There is not a single problem that can be that can be solved by having more politicians. In fact, there's not a, a single problem we face that hasn't been caused by politicians. So adding an extra eight senators is certainly not going to fix anything. Yes. Uh, the people of the Territory had uh, voted when they were asked against self-government, but the, as you know, the Hawke government imposed hmm. self-government on the Territory. I think the Act... Uh, the Act is uh, not a very well-drafted Act. It has a lot of weaknesses in it. Do you, uh, do you think there are weaknesses well, in it? Well, you say they voted against it twice. Yes, twice. That's there right. was two referenda for oh, all. I, I'd yeah. forgotten that. I was, um, I was only thinking of, of one. Yeah, I, look, it's been... And, and again, I said this uh, when I was talking about adding these extra senators, is that self-government in both the ACT and the Northern Territory has been an abject failure. It has been an unmitigated disaster. And I, I think the best thing that could happen with the ACT is, and, and part of the problem we have is we effectively have two governments here. We've got the National Capital Authority that looks after the nationally significant institutions, as it should, and then we have the ACT government, which is this glorified council uh, deluding itself that it's a state government. I think the best thing that could possibly happen, and I know the Victorians would be upset about this, but if the National Capital Authority kept control of the nationally significant institutions as it does, or the parliamentary triangle as we like to call it, and the rest of the ACT was absorbed into New South Wales, all of our problems would be fixed immediately. I think uh, John Stone uh, would have agreed with you. I think a few years ago he wrote something uh, or prepared something for the Samuel Griffith Society, arguing that the triangle should be the capital and the rest should be really in New South Wales. But say you kept the model, yeah. that the big things wrong with it are that there are no checks and balances on the government. There's no, 
There's no, nobody representing the Crown. Uh, it really needs an administrator. There's no upper house. And I, I think Queensland suffers particularly from uh, having the upper house taken away from the people of Queensland when they voted to keep it. Well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, the argument the ACT government will use is the Governor-General is effectively our, our vice-regal representative, and, and I think technically that's true. But when it comes to accountability, if you even look at the moment where Matt Canavan, the National Senator, has uh, effectively launched an inquiry by stealth into the Calvary takeover, and, and most people in the ACT are quite thankful that he's done that, the first thing that happens whenever whenever the federal government wants oversight over a federal jurisdiction, which is what the Australian Capital Territory is, the local assembly screams territory rights. You know, we just had a we just had a, a bill to restore territory rights so that we can bring euthanasia laws in. They're attacking territory rights, and my argument has always been it's not about territory rights and it's not about the rights of territorians. It's the rights of 25 incompetent muppets to indulge their delusions of grandeur. So nobody, none of the nearly half a million residents of the Territory get any rights out of this. These 25 people that could not get a job anywhere else now have the right to legislate on life and death effectively. But any time there is any oversight of the Territory whatsoever, they scream, you're impinging on Territory rights. And somehow the opponents then shrink away and say nothing. Well, that's not quite happening anymore. The, the, the Calvary takeover has upset enough people that they're not buying this territory rights thing anymore. Would uh, one solution be to have an upper house appointed, say with uh, an unpaid upper house appointed with uh, one member each from each of the states and say two or three from the, the Commonwealth sitting there controlling the excesses of the lower house? I, 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 I Again, I'm loath to agree <laughs> with anything that suggests more politicians, but... Maybe that's a, that does actually doesn't sound like a bad idea. Yes. The Washington DC doesn't have a, is is not treated uh, doesn't have a a territory government, does it? It has a, it, no. and it seems inappropriate in the capital. Yeah. Absolutely, and 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 that's the point. Is that, you know the the Australian Capital Territory only exists for one reason, and that is to house the federal parliament. Somehow they've they've morphed into this jurisdiction of their own, and they seem to forget that there is a national significance to what we do. And and to, except when it comes to funding, when they want to blame the federal government for not giving them enough money, it's always we're, we're the capital. Everyone else should be paying for everything. But when it comes to actually having a say in what happens in the capital, you should stay out of it. It's none of your business. So it's you know they try to have their cake and eat it too. But you know when the funding was uh, announced by the previous government for the expansion of the Australian War Memorial, which I think is infinitely necessary and will um, make our most important cultural institution better than it already is. The outcry from the ACT government that this money was being spent on the Australian War Memorial rather than handing them money to build a new stadium or build their light rail or whatever it is they wanted to build was extraordinary. They forget that we have this national significance and, in fact, it's the only reason we exist. That goes out the window when it comes to local politics. My only reservation, I agree with you about the War Memorial. My only reservation is the War Memorial seems to be talking about frontier wars, which did not exist. There were no frontier wars in Australia. You can't count these small encounters as, as a war. There's, there's no such thing as a war. What we saw in Australia was a coming in. It's well, well set out in Keith Winshuttle's book on this. Uh, 
on the yeah. the breakdown of Australia. But uh, it, it's an interesting dynamic. The Australian Memorial. It's an interesting dynamic. You've got the director Matt Anderson, who's a a, a magnificent human being. He's mm. almost finding a single single man rearguard action to try and protect the nature of the War Memorial. Then you've got the War Memorial Council, which is now led by Kim Beasley, um, trying to buy into all of these woke ideals that we see right across the rest of the country. Um, fundamentally, and I think the way the memorial operates, it doesn't concern me all that much that they're talking about frontier wars because there is a capacity within the memorial to embrace all of these things without destroying the very nature of what it is. Mm. Um, a classic example is when they talked about the uh, the Brereton report into uh, alleged war crimes in Afghanistan. There was a, a a campaign run by some people in the Sydney media that they were going to put up a wall of shame at the war memorial uh, that was going to besmirch the, uh, the character of our SAS troops. The director put it to me as this. He said, look, we've got to acknowledge everything that happens within the military context in Australia, and it may very well be that the Brereton Report sits in a filing cabinet somewhere in our archives. That doesn't mean we're going to put a wall of shame up. Now, we have to accept that this thing exists and we have to do something with it. And, you know, it has to be available if somebody wants to come here and do some research on a part of our military history. But that's as far as it's going to go. Yes, well, obviously, the, so, uh, you know, the Brereton Report should be available and uh, so should any critiques of the Brereton Report. That's part and parcel of a absolutely. democratic society. And I don't think, I don't think that's yes. the final word on uh, that period of our history. Uh, we, we, no, uh, I, I think that's right. Yes. Uh, and, and one of the things which uh, attracts me, and I haven't mentioned this to you before, is I think our states are too, the Commonwealth is too centralised. It is going into too many areas which are really state matters. But I think the states too are too centralised, where you have a, Sydney as the capital of the state and all of the politicians or a large number of the politicians are coming from Sydney. There is a good argument, I think, for Australia to seriously consider new states, particularly where people want them, as they do in North Queensland. Yeah, I, I think I've always been of the of the view that we should probably, and, and I know it's never going to happen because of the nature of our federation, but I think we need to get rid of a, a tier of government. And the only tier of government we could really do without is that state tier, uh, which means we'd have to expand local government into something more professional and something larger than what it is. And uh, and kind of in, in line with not necessarily creating more states, but I've all argued that we should be decentralising our cities in the sense that we have six major cities in Australia and that's it. Now, if you look at the United States, which is a landmass roughly the same size as ours, and granted, they've got a much bigger population, there are major cities all over that landmass. You know, it, I think we should be looking at any area in Australia that already has a population of about 150 to 200,000 people we should be trying to expand that into something bigger than it is, you know, give it the infrastructure it needs and decentralise things out of those major cities. That'll do two things. One, distribute the power a little bit better, but it'll also alleviate some of these problems we're having with overcrowding in our cities too. I mean, because people want to live in cities. If you create cities for them to live in, then they might move, but they're not going to move to small regional areas just because it's a nice place to live. There needs to be more to it than that. So, um Look, I, I understand your argument for more states. I'm just loathe to, one, create more politicians, and two, I've always believed that we need to eliminate a tier of government. And as I say, I think the only one you really can el eliminate is other states. But, of course, they would have to vote themselves out of existence, and that's not going to happen.
I think your decentralisation policy would be very appropriate for Australia so that we could copy that part of the United States practice of developing the whole continent rather than just the major cities. But that would require our politicians to agree what they seem to have stopped doing since the Hawke government, and that is uh, ensuring that these areas have water in sufficient quantities. Yes. Do you think yeah, the politicians could agree to move the water around? Well, apparently not. I mean, look at the, the dramas we've got with this Murray-Darling Basin plan at the moment. I mean, it, it seems to be going nowhere very fast. Um, you know, a lot of people have always said that we talk about Australia being the driest continent in, in the world, and maybe that's the case, but we're not short of water. We, we're just short of water where it needs to be. And with modern technology, and and I know a lot of people point to the, the Bradfield plan or the Bradfield scheme. I've read enough on that to suggest that the scheme as it was developed has been debunked and is probably not viable. But I also believe that in 2023, the technology should be available and the engineering now should be available to come up with something, an alternative to the Bradfield scheme that will actually deliver similar outcomes. So, uh, you know, I, I, whilst I dismiss the Bradfield scheme, I don't dismiss the concept that that can happen or something like that can happen, but it takes political will. It takes political will to make these things happen. You know, nuclear power is a classic example. Um, we've got, uh, you know, people out there suggesting that the only way to develop nuclear power is to build a bunch of Chernobyls around Australia and, and that's dangerous. Well, technology has moved on from that. And they'll say that oh, it would take 30 or 40 years to develop that. Well, we now have these small modular reactor technologies. And, and I've spoken to enough people that in that industry that tell me we could have them up and running in this country within seven years if we changed our legislation. So if you imagine that every town in Australia could have its own energy generation plant, one of these small modular reactors could run every town in Australia. Mm. With that amount of electricity, we, think we can then start shifting water around. All of these things can be done. But it's got to start with political hill, uh, political will in that big house on the hill here in Canberra, and that seems to be lacking. And that takes us back to our previous conversation about a professional political class with no real-world experience. Well, what you said earlier is so true that they're taking so much, they're putting so much effort into renewables and taking so much land. I, I think uh, the amount of uh, land being taken is the size of Tasmania, almost the size of Tasmania and half the size of uh, Victoria. That's an extraordinary amount of land to tie up in these wind and solar farms and the enormous transmission lines, which are dangerous from the point of view of fire in a, a country prone to mm. bushfires. Uh, we're really going to get into a, a big mess over this and reduce the agricultural capacity of the country. and. I, I see Mr. Byrne defending himself in the columns of The Australian, and uh, but it, it is not going to work, I would not think. No, and, and it's interesting you say that because when you talk, you talk about all that land that's being taken up, it is pristine farming land. Now, whether you like it or not, our arable land is limited in this country, but there's plenty of other land where you can actually do things. But that's not the land we're using for these solar farms and wind farms. We're putting them on that pristine agricultural land. And, and I know it, I'm loathe to use these buzz terms, but people talk about Australia's capacity to be the food bowl of Asia. We can actually be that. But we're not going to do it if we rip up every bit of farming land and put solar panels or wind 
towers down, uh, wind turbines down. It's just, you know, we're cutting our nose off to spite our face at every single opportunity. And when you look at the financial situation that Australia's in, and if you look at that intergenerational report that was released yesterday, we're going to have 40 years of deficits. Well, how do you overcome that if you take away our only remaining source of production? You know, we've, we've destroyed manufacturing in this country, largely because we don't have cheap, cheap, reliable power anymore. But the old saying that Australia rode on the sheep's back, it still does ride on agriculture to a large extent. It does re rely on our resources industry. But we want to cut both of those things off at the knees. It makes no sense whatsoever. You know, I've got an old friend that talks about turning ourselves into a country of baristas and waiters. <laughs> well, that's all well and good. But how do you how do you actually generate any income from that? And you I can't. Think, it's impossible. Yes, I think you're right. We our potential as the food bowl is much more likely than becoming the hydrogen superpower of uh, of the world or the the renewable superpower. Of the world. These these phrases which pour out of Canberra are just so absolutely ridiculous, and they they can't well, be sustained. Well, let's not forget that big extension cord. Yes. That big extension cord they wanted to run from Darwin to Singapore. Well, that, that lasted five minutes, didn't it? Yes. Oh, yes. Well, yeah. Stephen, you've been very generous with your time uh, and time is catching up with us. Thank you so much for sparing a lot of your wisdom with us. <laughs> May you keep on broadcasting and appearing on television and uh, giving us the sort of common sense which obviously the political classes are in desperate need of. Thank you very much, Stephen. David, I appreciate the time. Thank you. I'm uh, David Flint. This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV, and until next time, thank you.